dangerously close. My guest today is Mike Ricksecker. Mike Ricksecker is the author of the Amazon best-selling A Walk in the Shadows, A Complete Guide to Shadow People, The Esoteric Tome, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle, and eight historic paranormal books. He has appeared on multiple television shows and programs, including History Channel's Ancient Aliens and the Unexplained Travel Channel's The Alaska Triangle, Discovery Plus's Fright Club, Animal Planet's The Haunted, multiple series on Gaia TV, and more. Mike is the producer and director of the docuseries The Shadow Dimension, available on several streaming platforms, and produces additional full-length content on ancient wisdom, lost civilizations, and the supernatural on his extensive YouTube channel. And actually, I could go on and on and on. <laughs> I, could, uh, <laughs> I could be reading an, uh, an introduction to you for uh several more minutes but people don't want to hear that but oh i do need to mention one more thing one more book that has not come out yet but it will be out by the time this podcast uh goes up and that's travels through time so we'll be touching on that today as well as uh alaska's mysterious triangle what's up mike hey thanks for having me doug i really appreciate being here today and uh, thanks for mentioning the new book i know you've uh you want to talk about that a little bit and absolutely we will oh and uh i can't wait to read it uh i was actually yeah i i I think I, I like I told you before we started recording. I wanted to talk about your book, uh, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle, and you mentioned this other book, and I looked at it and I was like, "Oh, well, this is now I want to talk about this even more." So, <laughs> so we'll so we'll do both. It'll be a, a yeah. two part a two part thing. I guess you know for most people, just kind of like a quick uh, laying the groundwork for the Alaska Triangle. Everyone's probably you know under or not understands, but everyone's heard of the Bermuda Triangle because of pop culture, movies. Everyone knows what that is. The Alaska Triangle is a little more obscure. Um, it's it hasn't been around. There, it hasn't been in like in the world of people making theories and stuff. It's quite so long. And it's my understanding that it first the name got coined when two congressmen went missing in the Alaska Triangle. Is that correct? Is that the kind of the the impetus? Yeah, that for... would be that would be about the time. Uh... Hale Boggs, Nick Bagich. Uh, there are also two others on the plane. Of course, the pilot, Don Johns, uh, and then the uh, the aide there to uh, to Hale Boggs, Russell Brown. So, um, yeah, that happened in 1972. Really, it was during a, a re-election campaign. And going from Anchorage to Juneau, they got lost somewhere in the Portage Pass, uh, never to be found at all. No wreckage, nothing. Completely disappeared. At that time, it was the largest search and rescue mission in U.S. history. They utilized spy planes. To this day, nothing, no clue has ever been found of their whereabouts. And uh, yeah, you know, with uh, with the triangle aspect of it, um, you know, it's, it's branding, really. You yeah. Know, that, <laughs> uh, you know, when that happened with Bermuda, of course, there were a lot of strange things that were going on around the time in the 1940s. Flight 19 was kind of really the big thing that uh, propelled forward the notion that there was something I mean people already knew there were strange things that were going on in that area going all the way back to Christopher Columbus when he sailed through the area he noticed strange activity going on so there were always those different legends yeah. and flight 19 is really kind of what catapulted that and then as you started having different uh you know journals and magazines and things like that cover these different types of strange phenomena you know, they had to come up with a catchphrase. And so they ended up coining it 
uh, the Bermuda Triangle. And so you have these other areas around the world, like Alaska, there's actually a Nevada Triangle, Lake Michigan, there's the Dragon's Triangle out uh, by Japan, which is, you know, the history of that dates far older than anything uh, in the Atlantic with Bermuda. But um, yeah, uh, just for people that aren't familiar, briefly, what is Flight 19? Just in the importance. Yeah, of yeah. Flight 19. So this was a training flight uh, that headed out from uh, Fort Lauderdale. And, you know, it's just a routine mission. The reason why I was called Flight 19 was the 19th one of that particular day. And they were just on their regular route headed east. And when they turned north, uh, ironically, the route that they were taking was a triangle. <laughs> but <laughs> as they, as they uh, turned north, uh, all of a sudden they started uh, having all this erratic behavior with their instrumentation. The compass started acting all wonky and other things. And, uh, you know, so they're reporting in, hey, you know, we're getting some strange compass readings. And then a large storm rolled in and they ended up becoming, you know, completely lost. Last that uh, anybody had ever heard from them, they were trying to you know, duck under the clouds and uh, kind of skim the surface of the water. But they started reporting uh, other strange activity, like uh, they're looking down below. One guy thought he saw the Florida Keys, which would have been a complete opposite direction. Uh, many, many miles. So there's no way that they should have been anywhere near the Keys. Uh, and so after they went missing, they sent out search and rescue planes and one of the search and rescue planes went missing. So this, of course, became very, very legendary as to you know, what happened to these. And nothing's ever been found of either. Yeah. And I guess so. like that's how people, people draw the parallel to Alaska and the Alaska Triangle is, you know, one of the main things about it is that people go missing in this area and I don't know off the top of my head, the statistics, you know, it's, but it's uh, far above average of any other, it may be any other triangle you might draw in the United States. If I'm, I don't, I don't know if I'm correct. Yeah. They, they say, and this was a number we were throwing around when we were talking um, on the, on the Alaska triangle television. So um, what was that about three, four years ago now? And uh, you know, 18,000 people since 1988. Well, more people have gone missing since then as well so uh, yeah and uh what's what's funny is for a while they were calling it alaska's bermuda triangle so, <laughs> so they just gotta rip the name from that but yeah um, but you have these different areas around the world that are very similar uh yeah to these yes that truly is that is such a, a branding thing like they're like how about we call it alaska's bermuda triangle it's like how about you just call it alaska's triangle uh right <laughs> um obviously there are so many theories uh, we can make, maybe just kind of touch on a few, but one thing with two uh, besides like uh, the, the Congressman going missing as well as the pilot and the other passengers of the plane, have there been any other like kind of major uh, disappearances that kind of really made news? Uh, yeah. I mean, there've been several, probably one of the, uh, the earliest big news ones was uh, 1950. Uh, it was a, uh, it was a, Douglas Skymaster taking off from Elmendorf Air Force Base, 44 personnel aboard. And that went missing just on the edge of what we call the, the Alaska Triangle. And by the way, the Alaska Triangle stretches from Juneau to Anchorage to Yukiavik, which used to be known as Barrow, all the way at the top and, of course, back down. So um, very, very large area of land, about the size of the state of California. Yeah. And, um, and part of it does cut into Canada. And right on the edge... Uh, as they were crossing over into Canada around a uh, area called Snag in Yukon Territory, they lost complete contact with this 
with this airplane. And it was a, it was a fine day. It was January, uh, so it would have been a little chilly, but um, no, no storms, no snow, nothing like that. I mean, there's snow on the ground, but uh, yeah. they weren't driving or they weren't flying through a blizzard or anything like that, and just you know, completely disappeared. And at that point, it's kind of interesting. So the bog baggage, you know, became the uh, the largest search and rescue mission in U.S. history. Well, prior to that was this one. In yeah. 1950, that was the largest search and rescue in U.S. history. And uh, they combined with Canadian forces because they were actually, one, of course, it was it happened in Canada, but they were actually running um, uh, drills with Canadian forces at the time, doing some war games and things like that up there. So they pulled a bunch of personnel off of that to go look for this airplane. Again, nothing was ever found. And what's kind of fascinating is you know, just a few weeks later, there was a smaller plane, much smaller plane, that went down uh, in the area where they believed the Skymaster went down, they found that immediately uh, without any problems whatsoever, but yet still couldn't find anything with this, you know, huge Douglas Skymaster airplane. To this day, again, nothing's ever been found. Yeah, it's it is it's very bizarre. It you know raises questions, and like you said, and like the number has gone up. But uh, when you were doing the TV show, the number you guys were using was eighteen thousand people since nineteen eighty eight. That's practically, I mean, that's, that's not practically, that's literally like a town. That's like a, if, if a whole yeah. town just disappeared, you know, and that's. that's... Right. And it's <laughs> even more pronounced being in Alaska because the, the entire population of the state of Alaska is about the same as the city of San Francisco. Wow. So you put it into that type of context, you know, that number of people going missing in the city of San Francisco, it's, I mean, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So putting it in that perspective uh, for people that have been to San Francisco, that would be like if, if the financial district, everyone just disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> like there you in, go. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, obviously it didn't happen in a day, but still right. very, still very uh, uh, question raising. So you uh, have written about um, vortices, portals, uh, strange phenomenon of that sort. Can you kind of like, uh, mm-hmm. just kind of give me a picture of, uh, what that means, like what, yeah, or and, and how and how it's applicable to the the missing uh, people phenomenon. Absolutely. So when we're talking about the the creation of a vortex, you know, basically what's happening here is you have the uh, the magnetism of the Earth core, which is you know basically spinning molten metal, right? And so it creates a magnetic field, and that's that's you know gives us our magnetic shield around the planet and protects us from the the earth's uh, the sun's rays which is a good thing uh, however as that magnetism passes through different areas of the earth you know passes through the mantle passes through the crust it interacts with different metals and minerals and in different you know size quantities and depending on what it passes through it can create you know, other strange uh, electromagnetism of stronger anomalies and things like this and actually, in 1965, uh, the U.S. Department of the Interior did a survey of Alaska, only about 100,000 square miles, because, again, it's a massive area of land. You know, Alaska's two and a half times the size of Texas, so yeah. 600,000 square miles. I, so, it's, it's so easy to forget how huge Alaska is. It, it is, yeah, because it's at the top of the globe. Usually when we see a, a map of it, like the map of the United States, they put it in a little uh, yeah. corner, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. It's like, no, it's it's absolutely huge um but they did a a, pretty substantial survey up there and in this hundred thousand square miles they uh 
they classified what they called uh, five different magnetic characters. And within these different characters, they discovered what they called negative anomalies. So these areas of electromagnetism that would wreak havoc on the area. Uh, and, you know, you think of Alaska, it's a very volatile area to begin with because you have a lot of earthquakes up there. There's a lot of seismic activity. There's volcanic activity uh, that occurs up there. And then also, um, even though we talked about the uh, the magnetism of the planet, you know, helping to protect us from the sun rays, it's actually thinner up there. And so you'll have, uh, you know, the solar wind, you know, battering against that area of of the globe. And that's why we end up with those, you know, the auroras and things like that. Yeah. And so it's a, uh, you really have this magnificent cocktail of different energies that are uh, mixing around up there. Yeah. Yeah. I never really thought about that too, because that's, you know, you're at this uh, very extreme angle, which yeah, does create these beautiful natural uh, vistas, like the auroras and so much stuff like that, but also, yeah. Like w what else might be, uh, you know, not visible to the naked eye and that could be right could be a vortex of some sort um just um and i know this is kind of like this is a really broad question so maybe answer it in any way you might uh kind of feel like but what I, when speaking of a vortex like what we're talking about like maybe like something that might occur in the alaska triangle what what are the properties of something of a of a of a of like a natural occurrence like this yeah, I mean, that's something you'd have to get out with magnetometers and things like that to to measure, uh, which, uh, you know, you'd have to. And that's what the U.S. Department of the Interior did is uh, they went out with that different equipment to actually measure it. So, you know, really what you're talking about here are fluctuations within the um, within what would be a standard uh, degree of magnetism. So. You know, when we go out there with, uh, you know, just as, you know, somebody who's, uh, I don't want to say amateur, but uh, the equipment that we're using isn't as sophisticated as what, say, the government would have. So, you know, yeah. we might have a tri-field meter in our hands, you know, and you're watching the gauge, you know, the milligals go up and down and things like that. Uh, so we'll go out to an area and, you know, try to measure those type of properties. Uh, something that can also work well for this is, you know, like using an old school method, dowsing rods. Uh, and that's still used uh, by engineers today to find things like you know, water underground pipes, things like that. Um, you know, it's it's actually a, a verifiable method to be able to find things underground. So you can find electromagnetic anomalies there under the ground with something like uh, dowsing rods. And so uh, the the area in which these can spawn up, for lack of a better term, they can be small, they can be wide. You have to think about this as uh, as that magnetism is welling up out of the ground, you know, it's not just a steady stream. Uh, you're talking about, you know, molten metal within the earth's core that is spinning around. And so you're going to have these ebbs and flows, uh, to that. It's almost like a, uh, like a pulsating type of energy that is coming up and welling up out of the ground. So you're going to have some smaller waves and some stronger ones too. And so when it reaches the surface, you're going to have yeah, smaller, almost negligible reactions, and you're going to have some larger ones too. And of course, we see that even from our our own sun when the solar wind hits us, we'll have yeah. you know smaller solar flares and bigger ones. So the same thing with with the Earth and what's coming up out of the uh, core. So uh, theoretically, um, a vortex could potentially affect the instruments on, say, like uh, an airplane. 
helicopter, any, you know, any kind of um, vehicle that has navigational instruments like that could be affected by this phenomenon. Is that correct? Right, exactly. And so when we look at something like Flight 19 and their instrumentation all of a sudden uh, going awry, it would be something like a strong magnetic wave all of a sudden interfering with their compasses, you know, compasses are, they rely on, uh, on on magnetism. And when, you know, you put a magnet close to one and you see it start spinning like crazy. And so that's essentially what they were uh, experiencing there. And when it comes to Alaska, uh, one of the uh, ideas, of course, with some of these planes going missing, instrumentation starts acting crazy, you know, those sorts of things are going on, even uh, with ships, uh, the SS Princess Sophia, which is known as the uh, Alaska Titanic, nineteen eighteen, when that sank, you know they got caught up in a storm. Sure, um, and they ended up getting caught on a reef. Well, the captain had navigated that channel you know, countless times. He knew exactly where to sail the ship, and yeah. so once the storm kicked up, you know, he had only his you know his compasses and navigational equipment to rely upon. And one of the ideas there is that, you know, that started acting awry because of the electromagnetism of the area and ended up on the reef rather than in safe waters. Yeah, especially if you if you can't even rely on an instrument as simple as a basic compass. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, going back to, too, like, just because aircraft and, like, you know, speaking about what we, how we started this off, like, because, you know, obviously the, the manhunt, you know, the, the search and rescue looking for these, you know, congressmen was you know that's a huge uh multi-agency task force but i mean let's one potential explanation could be they flew through uh, a zone that affected their instruments and like we said alaska is enormous and if the pilot inadvertently you know and they're in a jet going very fast took them off course in a direction that nobody might nobody would have guessed and they could have easily crashed in an area that's, you know, unpopulated, you know, hundreds of miles from anything else. So that's, you know, that's, rather than, you know, saying, you know, they disappeared into thin air, it could also just be they went so far off course that the uh, search and rescue mission had no, like, frame of reference for how far they could have been. Yeah, that's always a possibility. You know, some of these uh, disappearances, we, we like to... In, in our field, a lot of people like to jump immediately to, oh, it's something supernatural in nature. Well, you know, a lot of these people that went missing, uh, you know, got, got lost in the woods and hate to say they probably got eaten by a bear. Yeah. Uh, you know, they got lost. Some of them just wanted to get lost in the woods. Yeah. Um, you know, certain individuals are just, they want to get away from society. They go out there and they live off the land for a little while and you know, eventually pass away. Okay. You know, the, the famous guy, uh, McCandless. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Into the wild, right? Is that? My, yeah, yeah, into yes. the wild. Um, yeah, so you have people like that. So, you know, some of these things are legitimate. And and yes, um, every once in a while, they will encounter a plane that uh, went down and had gone missing decades beforehand. And, and that happens. So, yeah. uh, but, but some of these, like the ones with Boggs Baggage, you know, the flight path being the Portage Pass going through there. Well, we know they entered it. Um, the, the last known communication was as they were heading into it. Uh, and it's a long stretch and it's the area that you're not going to fly your plane out of. Basically what happened is you'll get too close to the walls of the mountains and crash into the mountain. They yeah. didn't find any, uh, you know, any evidence of a crash. 
course, if once they come out of the pass, and it's a lengthy pass too, then then it's kind of open game there from there to Juno. But if that was the case, why didn't they radio in to say, okay, we've made it through the pass, we're in in route to to Juno, as you know would usually be the case there. So yeah, you know, you're still kind of scratching your head. Yes, they could have gone way off course and uh, never found again that sort of thing. But it kind of you kind of scratch your head. Well, you know why to some of those different questions and uh i guess and uh just just to throw out one more thing on the on the missing persons like you said there's so many reasons you, mm-hmm. you can get lost you can get eaten by a bear you could be like um, a candleist from into the wild you go out there unprepared and you're just not ready for the alaska winter if you get trapped out there um and one other thing there's there's so much true crime you know mm-hmm. there's there's true crime podcast dedicated exclusively to alaska because they have probably a higher percentage of serial killers or just you know people you know people murderers of any sort and it's just you know it's a place to go up and you know get lost so that's another potential thing is you got you got people that you know that are murderers that are good at covering their tracks yeah and you have to and keep into the context, you know, the percentages of anything in Alaska are going to be higher simply because the population is so much lower. Yeah. So <laughs> you can you can play around with statistics as, as much as you want. The percentages are always higher there because of the, the lower population. But what is interesting, uh, talking about true crime, uh, there was an interesting report that came out, um, let's say it was almost 10 years ago now, in which there was an individual uh, coming forward that had participated in a number of different uh, high-profile crimes in Alaska, and he was basically spilling his guts to uh, the, the local law enforcement up there, and they forwarded some information onto the FBI because one of the uh, cases that he said that he was involved with was the Boggs Baggage uh, case, and what he said was that he was hired, again, don't ask any questions, he was hired uh, back at that time to simply go up to the plane, drop a case off in the plane, walk away. And mm-hmm. in his circles later on, he was told that this case included an explosive. And so he was divulging this information. Of course, there were several people that wanted the uh, the case reopened, you know, look into the, the Boggs baggage uh, disappearance again. It would have been uh, at that point in time, what, 30 years after the fact. Yeah. Uh, and... They didn't want to. And their reasoning for that was we have scoured that area relentlessly. If there had been an explosion, we would have found some sort of shrapnel. And they even included saying that other planes have crashed in the area since then or have gone down, made emergency landings, whatever, over those 30 years. And we still have not found one shred of any wreckage of the Boggs baggage plane. So it's, it's interesting because you have now a an element of possible crime involved within it and still. Yeah, and okay. still, yeah. <laughs> um, and I feel like I'm just kind of bouncing all around, because especially because I was just going down the path of just trying to, you know, uh, say like, yes, there's always s- several um, instances of things that can be easily, you know, can be explained away in you know in a traditional way that you might want to uh you also happen to be we're going to go into kind of a back into a more supernatural kind of realm of, with this though and you have you're an expert on uh the shadow realm shadow people 
And this is something that you actually write about in regards to the Alaska Triangle as well as uh, mm -hmm. uh, having uh, being an element. Um, <clears throat> just for everyone who doesn't under, uh, has never heard of this, uh, the the Shadow Realm or Shadow People, can you just kind of give a brief just overview of what that is? Yeah, <laughs> that's a tough question. Or, or I guess uh, I mean, I mean, because you don't yeah. have to be brief. Just however you feel like. <laughs> <laughs> right, because uh, yeah, because that crack opens and crack opens a whole barrel of worms. Um, yeah, because the, the whole you know answering the question, what is a shadow person? It's like, well, they can be all kinds of different things, but basically, um, you know, the idea of you know, shadow person. You know, this is some sort of being, some sort of entity that appears to us it might appear in a room we might see something run down the hall we might see something out in the woods and it is looks human in form uh but is a shadow you don't really see any discernible features you might see some eyes they might appear to be wearing some sort of clothing but it's very shadowy very vague very dark in nature some are very translucent uh some it, you'll also have like some mists and wisps sort of thing so some may just be like an amorphous form uh, almost like a dark cloud. Uh, some may just be, you'll get a glimpse of something and it just darts by. So they take a lot of different shapes and forms and this sort of thing, but we all kind of group them together uh, under shadow beings. And they can be a lot of different things. So you know, we could be talking like a uh, human spirit who doesn't fully form as an apparition. We could be talking uh, some sort of interdimensional being. We could be talking uh, a, an extraterrestrial it's taking a number of different forms. We'd be talking uh, time slips or time travelers. We could be talking astral projections. They can be a lot of different things. But uh, what it comes down to is the way that energy uh, basically morphs into our plane of existence in the way that our eyes are able to actually view it because we only see into a, uh, a certain spectrum of light. Yeah, and I think this is one thing too. For however you uh, might prefer to explain it, uh, I think it's something that I would I would guess most people at some time or another have experienced seeing some kind of something like a shadow person, like out of the corner of your eye. What's that? Who is that? You know, you know like especially, yeah, like uh, when you're this happens a lot to people that are uh, maybe tired, middle of the night kind of thing uh, in the woods. There's all kinds of different scenarios in which this can happen. Um, but you said something a minute ago, and I was just curious because you said uh time traveler, but then you said a time slip as that's, that's a different yeah. type of, uh, is that, sorry, that's. I'm... Well, it's intention really, you know, time, what would really, we would call a time traveler, somebody who is intentionally trying to travel within time. Something like a time slip is more accidental in nature, uh, yeah. for lack of a better term. Uh, we, you know, we'll get a glimpse of uh, you know, another moment in time. And a lot of times they'll get chalked up to, it was a ghost or an apparition or something like that. But some of these uh, cases like that, uh, we'll see, you know, like a, a scene kind of morph into existence from another point in time. And the people within that scene will turn and look at us as if we were the ghost. Well, that's something like a, that's basically a time slip. Yeah. Um, fascinating story in regards to time slips and uh, shadows is a story that was related to me a couple of years ago now. Uh, I was a young man. And when he was a, when he was a child, he had walked into the kitchen, saw this tall, dark hooded figure uh, standing over by the kitchen table, scared him to death, boom, ran out of the kitchen. Years later, he's in the kitchen, he's making a sandwich, 
and he's wearing a hoodie and all of a sudden <laughs> in the doorway he sees this short shadow person walk into the room and then boom take off and he realizes in that moment oh my god that was me when i was a kid and basically you know i didn't see anything dark or sinister i actually just saw myself yeah and uh, it basically scared myself basically two moments in time that you know resonating uh close enough to each other in that moment where it came across as a as a shadow form you know that actually i don't know why but that uh story just kind of was like it's not a scary story but it was just kind of gave me a little chill just a little bit just kind of like it's uh i don't know man it's stuff like that because i i'm uh i'm someone who experiences deja vu fairly fairly frequently and i have i don't really have a personal theory for it i've heard lots of different uh takes i've heard uh one thing that i'd like to believe is that uh when you're experiencing a lot of deja vus it means that you're following the correct path in your life and that's uh for whatever reason that's a side effect i just i just like to believe that because it's you know it's comforting but uh i wonder uh yeah i i wonder if there is any way to kind of tie in the idea of time slip to the idea of deja vu. Yeah. I, um, I mean, it's all related. I have my whole idea of the connected universe. Everything is, is connected. And with, uh, with deja vu, you know, there's, you know, I get a lot of deja vus via like dreams that I've had. Um, sometimes I'll have a, a dream and the entire thing plays out for me couple weeks, month, two months later, whatever, whatever it is, somewhere down the road, I'll walk into a place like, oh my gosh, I just yeah. had a dream about this place. Uh, sometimes it's not as distinct like that, where it's um, walk into a place like, this is really familiar. And there'll be just a little notion of, I had a dream about this place, but it won't be like fully formed. I won't quite remember that full dream. So yeah, you could look at it as you're, you're on the right path or whatever you where you're supposed to be because i think what's happening not not all dreams of course but you know actual precognitive uh dreams in which we will get a glimpse of something in the future you can actually look at that a little bit as a form of time travel or at least getting a glimpse of uh something at another point in time because okay we're we're tapping into it we're seeing it with our with our mind's eye while we're asleep and then all of a sudden boom we find ourselves there yeah, that's interesting. You would bring up. I, I didn't bring that up earlier, but uh, I don't know if it's like the primary uh, type of deja vu that I have, but it is certainly the most uh, kind of affecting, the most kind of profound feeling ones are the ones where I, I'm at a certain place doing a certain activity and have the sense that I've already done this and that I've already been here and then i remember it was a dream because right. i because yeah, like you know you wake up from your, your, your dreams especially if it was a mundane dream you're not going to go oh what a, i'm going to write this dream down but oftentimes it's these it is oftentimes mundane too it'll, it'll be like that i you know that i was in a restaurant and i ordered a particular thing in a, and i'm like i dreamt i dreamt that i did i had <laughs> dreamt this i dreamt this very mundane uh-huh. uh <laughs> normal interaction uh I feel like I took us a little bit further from uh, where we very first started, which was talking about shadow people in relation to the Alaska Triangle. And I'm just curious, uh, in what way uh, can that tie in? 
So, uh, you know, shadow activity is certainly some of the paranormal activity that is reported up in Alaska. Um, there's quite a bit of paranormal activity, uh, a lot of UFOs. Shadow activity is is one of those kind of in that in that realm. But I've actually experienced that when when I was stationed up there. Uh, it was 1992, 1995, and two of those years, I was in the basement of the Alaska Command Building in a secure facility, and um, it was mostly around the back office area, although, and most of the people down there saw this stuff. It was it was bizarre. We couldn't really talk about it in detail. Yeah. Uh, couldn't run it up the chain of command, because once you start talking about that sort of stuff, you're going to find yourself down at mental health and you're going to pull your security clearance and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so, no fun. <laughs> no, not at all. So it was kind of amongst, you know, whispers to ourselves, like um, really one of the first times that even acknowledged it. Uh, if you don't mind if I interrupt, yeah, uh, can, can, I, can I ask uh, what branch this was? Uh, yeah, it was Air Force. Air Force. Yeah, I, was in, I was in the Air Force for six years. Yeah. First three years was, uh, was Elmendorf Air Force Base, Alaska. And um, yeah, so uh, we shared our, our, office was worldwide military command control systems which is now global command control and control systems um and we shared space with uh, the base communication center so we were doing more for uh you know worldwide command in you know, that type of communication system while they were just basically taking in messages for the base uh in any case that aside um you know one of the first acknowledgments that this was going on i've already seen a couple of things, but my supervisor down there, when I first got into that, um, into that shop, he had been away on leave or had a temporary duty somewhere or whatever. I can't quite remember what was going on with him. Um, cause he finally showed up like a week and a half, two weeks later, and we're sitting down in his office and just having a little chat, getting to know you sort of thing. And I noticed something kind of, you know, dart by his door. Yeah. And you know, it's just kind of like a whistle, a sh- little bit of a shadow. And I was, he notices that I notice it. Yeah. And he's like, he just simply says, Yeah, that happens here. And it went on. <laughs> <laughs> and it went on with whatever we were talking about. Oh like, my okay. God. Okay. So um, so it was, it was interesting because you know, over those couple of years, and you'd be walking down, you know, the little hallway there, because it's just a, a bunch of cubicles that was in this big open space. Um, before you got to the uh communications part of it before, before you got to the servers and everything and um just be walking down one of the short little halls and you see something dark you know down one of the other little halls or whatever and you kind of look at your buddy and <laughs> like, yeah. yeah i saw that too uh, so there was like this prevailing legend that came out of this that the uh that area since it was in the basement of the building people talked about the building having once been a hospital and that where we were at was the morgue and where our uh, racks of like patch panels and multiplexers and crypto devices, all that stuff, that that room was where they kept the coolers. So as I'm doing the research for my book, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle, I want to include this story and what we experienced down there. So I'm doing the research on the building. You know, I want to verify all my facts and everything. Okay, when was it a hospital, et cetera. Come to find out the building was never a hospital. It was built for exactly what it was being used for, which was command. So then I had to ask the question, okay, so why in the world were we seeing these shadows if they weren't like, you know, spirits of the dead sort of thing, which yeah. is where everybody was going with that sort of idea. And, um, you know, given 
the environment. And when we're talking, okay, we're in the Alaska Triangle, so we already have the electromagnetism there, uh, the prevailing stuff coming up out of the Earth. Uh, we're also in a, you know, we're also in a command center where there is a lot of electromagnetic activity. And so it, it kind of, we talked earlier about energy kind of creating a cocktail, no soup and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, we're getting rocked with earthquakes on occasion, things like that. So it just made me wonder, you know, I, I and there's no way to know for sure without going back and investigating. Of course, I'm never going to let us do that. Uh, you know, were we possibly seeing going back to time slips, glimpses of personnel from the past, future, maybe we're seeing ourselves because none of this was like sinister in nature or anything like that. We we're just seeing, you know, shadows moving in and around and about the area. Yeah. So, yeah. It's and, one possible idea. And not, not to sound silly, but I do, I, I have to bring it up because it just seems, it's kind of like you can't ignore it, is that it seems like the Air Force guys have to deal with this the most. It's like Air Force yeah. bases are the ones that are the most often, uh, something unexplainable is happening i feel like that happens far less to like you know marines army other <laughs> other <laughs> other guys i i think yeah because a lot of the guys um that you know are kind of in our in our niche in our area of research are a lot of air force guys and other branches are represented too i mean i know guys from the army and uh marines navy and all that um but yeah some of my closer friends are our air force guys i think especially with our connections to UFO activity. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's really where it kind of comes into play. You know, yeah. For a long, long time, like with Project Blue Book, it was the Air Force that was involved with Project Blue Book. So I think that's really where it stems from is our connection to UFOs, UAPs. Yeah, I mean, even recently with like with the Navy and all the stuff that's come out recently with Pentagon, it's still the pilots. So it's... Right. right. It's a Air Force adjacent. Uh do you, mind, do you mind if I share like a very quick uh, just anecdote from my, like a personal experience sure. of my own? And just, sure, go ahead. I'm just curious about like maybe if you have a take on it. Um, this was m many years ago. I was uh, working with the uh, National Forest Service. I was doing a Sawyer training type thing. And I was with probably at least 30 other people out in the, out in the woods. We were camping and having to share tents. So I was in a tent with like four other people. And an extremely vivid dream was a lucid dream. And I came across what can only be explained in my dream is like kind of just a, <clears throat> like a dark uh, be, you know, entity being, however you want to call it, but, you know, a negative force that was, it, it, but it was a dream, but I was lucid dreaming. So it seemed very real and I needed to wake up. So I started kind of like um, hyper, hyperventilating, trying to, um, you know, move the wake up process along, which is, a little trick for people that have lucid dreamed a lot. That's mm -hmm. if you want out fast, hyperventilate. Uh, but when I came out of the dream, the uh, like the being that I had encountered in my dream appeared to me to be a fully formed, solid in this world creature on top of me. And I, but I don't recall if I was able to make much noise, but it, it, it was a, it was a brief thing. It wasn't there for very long, but it like, it, it appeared to have come completely into the world that I live in this physical realm. And then, you know, then it was gone. And then I was waking up all everybody else in the tent, like, Oh my God, you know, but it was, uh, I didn't have any evidence is, is that, do you have any, like, 
Does that yeah, like, fall in any kind of theory or? Right. No, it's actually something that's called old hag syndrome. Uh, Cause a lot of times when people experience this, uh, they have the visage of uh, like the old woman sitting on their chest. And this is actually something that has been um, you know, for, for thousands of years has been talked about. It actually goes back to the time of, of ancient Sumer where people were reporting, seeing uh, the visage of, um, of Alu, which was one of their, we, our, our interpretation of the word is quote unquote demon, uh, yeah. which is really a loose interpretation. They, it was an Udug. And what what the shamans would do would invoke a good Udug to combat the bad Udug sort of thing. But in any case, um, this thing would hover over people at night. Um, it had very, very similar properties to what we would call a shadow person today. Um, no eyes, no nose, no mouth. Then this thing actually didn't even have limbs. But you know, over the millennia, different cultures have had their own interpretation of that phenomenon, whether it's the old hag sitting in the chest, some sort of ghoul, that sort of thing. And it can take a, a number of different forms. It can be extremely solid, sometimes not as solid. Uh, one of the accounts in my book, A Walk in the Shadows, this woman woke up to a dire wolf sitting on her chest, um, ended up waking up the, the husband because she's struggling. What's really bizarre about that one is um, you know, he looks down at his wife. He doesn't see the wolf himself, but he saw like uh, the impressions of paw prints on her shoulders. Wow. Um, yeah, turned on the light and the whole event ended. But um, so, yeah, people have been reporting this type of phenomenon for thousands of years. So uh, so you're not alone. And there's a lot of different theories as to who and what they may be, what they want. Again, we're, we're you know, some people immediately jump to, oh, they're all demons, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but in a lot of cases, these could uh, very simply, not very simply, but uh, they could very well be uh, you know, interdimensional beings, something from uh, some other plane of existence. Some people believe that they're like the the jinn uh, from the you know, Middle Eastern legends. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this phenomenon does you know occur a lot. So and it, it goes along with the the sleep paralysis as well, uh, which can happen uh, at that time where people. Are, unable to move in, which is a real biological phenomenon. I mean, that is, that yeah. happens to people with or without these beings, but um, a lot of people will experience the paralysis with it. Other people don't. Um, there's, uh, there's a guy I know who claims that he actually was able to physically take this being and throw it off of him. And they fell onto the floor rolling around, which is <clears throat> quite interesting. So yeah, there, there's a mix of tales, but mm. what you experience is, is certainly legitimate. I had no idea that it had that long of a history because uh, mm -hmm. what I'm mostly familiar with is just there's a lot of memes out there about okay. uh, what you said with sleep paralysis and people making jokes about their sleep paralysis demon. Uh, right. And that's kind of like so I was like, OK, well, this is a thing that people I'm not the only person that's had something like this. But, yeah, the uh, the idea that it sits on your chest and it appears to want something like that's that's crazy this goes back thousands of years i i had uh never no one's ever actually mentioned that to me before that this wasn't just uh like a maybe an overactive nightmare um but you know what, no, man, it's something that's real it, it's it's legitimate so yeah you're not alone <laughs> i i could go on the thing is if if i was able to ask you every single question i want to talk to you about with the alaska triangle it would take you know weeks so what i'm going to say to everyone right now the lesser uh go just pick up the book uh, uh 
sorry, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle by Mike Rexecker. You can delve into, I mean, we barely scratched the surface. We didn't yeah. even get, we, I mean, barely scratched the surface of the things that are in, uh, to talk about with the subject. But I want to move on to your new book, Travels yeah. Through Time. And this sounds fascinating to me. I cannot wait till it comes out. Uh, when this episode is out, this book will be out. So um, you might need to help me with this word, Ouroboros. Ouroboros, yes. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so ancient alchemy and the secrets of the Ouroboros. What are Ouroboros? So Ouroboros is that uh, symbol of the snake eating its own tail. It's oh, cool. The, yeah, it's, a, it's the symbol of uh, eternal recycle and renewal. And we see that symbol. The, the first incarnation that we saw of it was on the uh, shrine of King Tutankhamun. Uh, it was basically encircling his head and actually encircling his feet. A lot of people don't see that, that yeah. image, but there is one like that as well. Uh, we see it in some other ancient Egyptian tombs as well. And then we see it uh, in, in ancient alchemy. This is something that kind of one of the more famous images is it, um, uh, an illustration from the 1400s by Theodorus Pelicanos. And it's the one that um, has the feet, kind of has fins. It's two different colors, uh, red and green and there's a whole bunch of text and, and things like that surrounding it uh, but he had actually uh, transcribed this made a copy of it from an older alchemical tract from uh, around 390 AD and it, it's really a a last vestige uh, almost of the uh, lost library of Alexandria uh, which is fascinating to me but within that symbol that we've seen you know throughout time uh, you have between the two colors, you have the idea of duality. The, the feet and the fins represent uh, different parts of the uh, the alchemical mantra. But then the snake eating its own tail, the constant renewal and recycle, we see that concept throughout history in which uh, the ancients would talk about you know, after this time, there is another time and there was a time before this that we were constantly you know civilizations rising falling and starting again but not just civilization the entire universe so the question of what was you know what was before this universe well, what was before the big bang well there was the universe before it was another one before ours that uh, basically was destroyed and then we were born back out of it and i tie this into the uh recent uh, studies that have been done down in Antarctica with the uh, with the Ice Cube project and the Anita project specifically, in which they were doing research on neutrinos and found them acting in a very, very bizarre way. And when reports first came out uh, some years ago, they were basically laughed at because they were kind of in more tabloid-esque journals talking about, hey, there's a, a parallel universe running in reverse time. And they kind of got laughed at. But then Earlier this year, peer-reviewed uh, article published paper of no, this is actually legitimate. You know, they have through these neutrinos have detected a parallel universe running in reverse time, and so, you know, what would that, what would that look like? What would if you had a uh, another world here with us running in reverse time, and it comes back around? Well, that's our symbol of the Ouroboros. You know, one part is is the tail, one part is the head, and when they meet, that's the Big Bang. Wow, 
<laughs> it's okay, both. So, yeah. It's both. It's both the beginning and the end. The yeah. Alpha and the Omega, the yin and the yang, all of that. And almost in a way too, it's a, it's a, or at least for me, and I don't know how it is for everyone, but it's almost a slightly easier way to take the concept of infinity and make it a little more, uh, something you can grasp just a little bit more because for me, I know that, I mean, the concept of infinity is not something really anyone can truly grasp, but yeah, the idea of the Ouroboros and kind of making it into that kind of symbol. So that's amazing. That was that was on the Teuton uh, uh, uh sarcophagus. Yeah, yeah, it was on his uh, on the shrine, uh, which basically was you know, housed the sarcophagus. Yeah. Wow. Um, I guess uh, moving forward to, uh, we're going to go back to the uh, the idea of time slips, and mm -hmm. you have historic and modern account of time slips. You just told. The amazing one. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the, the story that gave me chills about the, the little boy seeing himself in the future, being terrified of him, and then in the future realizing he was the, the menacing uh, figure. Uh, would you be willing to share maybe one more uh, account? Yeah, yeah, one out of history. We'll give a historical one. The, the famous German poet Goethe. Uh, he's basically walking down uh, the street one day. He's headed to Drusselheim. Uh, he's basically having an affair with a young woman. And on the other side of the road, he notices this man that's dressed kind of strangely. He's in this uh, gold-trimmed gray suit. He's like, okay, that's uh, kind of a dapper guy. And then all of a sudden, the guy disappears. What in the world was that? Okay. Years later, he's leaving Drusselheim, walking down the same road, and realizes, looking down at himself, oh, my God. I'm that guy. I'm in the gold trim gray suit. I saw myself. <laughs> so, so it's kind of it's kind of fascinating that um, you know because he was and he admits in his his writing he was you know very you know, very much lost in thought at at that time because of this this woman and the situation and all that stuff. And yeah. you know, I think we can all relate to how you know your mind can kind of you know drift and, and that sort of thing. And so. You know, really, he was almost in a little bit of a meditative state, and somehow his consciousness was able to tune into himself at another point in time when he was on that road and actually got a glimpse of himself. And I guess um, I know that you you write a lot about uh, the paradoxes. I mean, mm -hmm. this is kind of like the, the the hardest thing about having a conversation about time travel or even time slipping, which would be uh, like ideas such as. If you were to go to a, um, a moment in time that was, especially if you went into the past, it would immediately alter the entire future. Um, and I guess with a time slip, is there some kind of way around that in the sense that maybe it, because it, it has always been that way? Is that kind of one of the ways to kind of avoid that paradox? Well, how do I put this? Uh, you know, paradoxes are going to happen. <laughs> They're yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and we use them in a way, uh, you know, with like sci-fi movies and things like that in, in our pop culture. You know, they become almost like a storytelling gimmick. Um, but I think we're actually seeing some of these different things play out, you know, when you, uh, we talk about things like the Mandela effect. And I don't just mean like, you know, we're misremembering the branding on a you know, particular package you know yeah. there are events that happen that several people from uh across the world are kind of scratching their heads like no nah, i remember that completely 
differently. They had no contact with each other, but somehow, you know, they remember it the same. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that is a repercussion of, you know, something happening where there is an event that was slightly modified and people ask, well, why would somebody want to go back and change that particular event? Cause sometimes it's just really mundane, right? It's like, well, it might be something else that was, you know, uh, that they went back to visit and touched or whatever. And, you know, basically the butterfly effect somewhere down the road, yeah. it had these other repercussions. So, um, yeah, when we look at paradoxes, it's really the result of, uh, some sort of tampering with, with time. Um, Okay, and this oh, I, I I'm glad that this is what I had next to talk about because we had discussed this uh, in relation to deja vu's or at least uh, with me, which is uh, in your book. It's written as uh, dreams and accessing eternal knowledge, yeah. and maybe just kind of like a little overview of what you mean by that. Yeah, so when we're talking kind of quote unquote eternal knowledge, it's the idea of the collective unconscious, which was a, uh, a theory proposed by Carl Jung, famous uh, psychologist, and, uh, and of course, there's also the idea of the the akashic records. They're both very they're very similar to each other. This idea that there is you know, free, <laughs> for lack of a better, free floating information uh, of the universe that's out there for us to be able to to tap into and essentially download. And we, when we're in our sleep and dreaming, um, I think it's a little bit easier for us to be able to tap into that uh, in our different brainwave states. And so you'll see things, um, you know, happen like uh, all of a sudden everybody's trying to invent the same thing, like the the light bulb or the telegraph or whatever, um, all across the world. And how in the world did these guys all suddenly, you know, very very little contact with each other? And of course, they're all competing with each other. Suddenly, start to try to invent the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So somehow they're, you know, they're tapping into uh, that that same piece of information, and so that's um, you know, knowledge that is eternally available. And I say eternal, so um, it's always it's always there for us. But then somebody will ask, well, then you know, why can't we suddenly get the uh, uh, the answer for? how we travel across the the cosmos in five minutes so that we can get to some of these other solar systems and planets. It's mm -hmm. like, well, you know, you have to realize that, sure, you might be able to tap into that information, but would you really understand it at this point in time? You know, there's a progression <laughs> to, to yeah. learning and knowing some of these things. You know, our, our minds are more of uh, set in the world of, of Newtonian physics. And we're just starting to get into things like, you know, quantum and, and, and things like that. So, you know, whatever that information is, we have to have some sort of basic understanding of how to pull it off. Otherwise it would just be complete gibberish to us. Yeah. No, I, I 100% subscribe to the, uh, the concept, especially what you're saying, like when, uh, it, in certain points in history where uh, a very revolutionary new idea or technology or whatever occurs, but it also occurs on the other side of the planet, no contact, especially, mm -hmm. especially during time periods when we didn't have telecommunications or any kind of way to uh, spread those ideas. And maybe kind of on more of a, this is might not tie in as well, but it's, it's something that everyone, you know, has witnessed so much and that's in like the world of sports and probably the most, easy to explain or you know to, to use as an example is uh the uh speed record 
like whoever you know is the fastest guy in the so when uh usain bolt you know ran faster than anyone else in the world has ever run suddenly a bunch of people can run that fast <laughs> and <Right>. you know <laughs> and 50 years ago no one could and i guess you know people explain that the idea is like well once people know that it's possible they can do it um i don't know i, I don't know, I know if that uh if that applies as well or if that's just kind of a side a side note that's uh, yeah I, I think that's one of those of uh you know we are talking about the human consciousness here and you know and i think there is something to be said for that once once we know something is possible then boom our mind can expand to reach that because i i think it's one of those um cases in which you know, the human mind needs to believe it first before it can actually do it and once somebody else has done it well okay well it can be done so i'm gonna yeah. do it but yeah then you have some of these other, so it's related not exactly the same but then you have these others you know like you're saying no telecommunications uh and they're doing things that you know just boggle the mind yeah yeah like yeah like building pyramids that's <laughs> probably what it, right probably yeah the you look example. at yeah you look at the the step pyramid and you look at in egypt and, the, and then cheats and eats it's like you know how in the world if they had no contact with each other although they may have that uh that's yeah. a story for another day <laughs> um i'm going to continue to jump around uh mm -hmm. but i kind of have i kind of have to because i know that uh, we're only going to scratch the surface surface of uh this book as well but i did want to ask um the uh, the idea of the universe as a simulation. Um, yeah. What does what does that have to do with time? Uh, well, because time is one of those uh, parameters of the simulation, so it's one of the rules that's been set in here. Sometimes we're able to bend or break rules within the simulation, and so um, so on occasion we're able to kind of come out and you know, have a time slip or something like that. Yeah. But um, you know, the idea of the simulated universe and i'm not necessarily talking about you know the matrix and being in a computer simulation simulation per se yeah um i believe it's something that's more organic biological in nature but if you look at our ancient religions they actually talk about this without using the word simulation mm -hmm. so like a lot of um eastern beliefs eastern philosophies talk about reincarnation that you know we, we come from somewhere we come down here for you know a, a period of time, learn some lessons, go back up, come back, you know, again and again, recycling, uh, which is basically what you do when you're in something like a simulation, like you know, say a flight simulator or something like that. You yeah. Know, you log into it, fly around for a little while, learn a few things in the simulation, and then you log back out. Um, even you know, Christianity, they talk about you know, we're down here preparing for a new world to go on to somewhere else so this is just a temporary world i have uh, never once in my life uh thought about that the idea of the the christian element of that you are preparing for the next world that is like you know for whatever reason is a more advanced world or, mm -hmm. that's yeah yeah so our you, go ahead oh i was just gonna i was just gonna say same thing with like with the Vikings with uh, Valhalla, you know, mm -hmm. they're battling on Earth with the hopes of later battling in Valhalla, <laughs> an right. upgraded level of the simulation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, so, you know, with with that in mind, the 
the the way the the universe has been constructed is from some external source. It, it set up the ground rules, it set up the parameters. One of those elements is is time. So when we talk about wherever it is we come from, you know, the home world, what have you, um, it's going to have a you know different set of rules and parameters than us. So you take you know like the idea of a of a video game or what have you. You can do all kinds of fantastical things within a video game that you can't do here in the in the real world. So it's that kind of uh, similar type of concept. And you, know, you take a look at the way of you know time might work in. Uh, a video game, like especially like RPGs that have day and night cycles that you know, are very, yeah. very a lot quicker than uh, than normal life. Um, so, you know, time does work differently. So it's, then go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. Uh, I was, I was going to say then um, that's one aspect of it, but you also have to you know consider this other world or plane of existence is in a, a different dimensional space. So um you know, ourselves we're in the fourth dimension which is time yeah um time and time is just a human construct used to describe our reality you know we use it to uh you know keep track of the seasons when to play at crops when to show up at the at the job at the right moment that sort of thing um but above that fifth dimension time to somebody in the fifth dimension would look like you know, kind of any 3D object to us. Unfortunately, because of that concept, we, when we try to depict time from the fifth dimension, we basically put a 3D object on top of a 3D object, which is bizarre. Yeah. Um, it would look very different. But that's basically the concept, is that if we were in a dimension outside of time, we would be able to see all time, every moment from beginning to end. One of my favorite books by uh, Kurt Vonnegut, uh explores that subject it's the book uh slaughterhouse five and yeah, i've read that yeah the aliens are called the trail malfadorians they live in the fifth dimension and they mm -hmm. see all time as one landscape and they can and they choose to look at time in like in the in ways like as though it's music or paintings you know they just try to look at the most pleasant aspects of time and try to like kind of ignore the un unpleasant aspects but they feel as though there's no nothing they can do to change time because it like, yeah, like you said, it, it, to them, it's a three dimensional object. Right. Um, they're rather, they're rather accepting of what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess this kind of moves into um, just the idea of time as a linear construction. It goes, it goes one direction. So people generally just accept that what happens in the past can affect the future. Um, although we have just talked about uh, the Ouroboros and also the, uh, research going on with the neutrinos showing there's a parallel dimension where time is moving in a opposite direction. Uh, does any of this stuff, is this, is this kind of how you get to the uh, idea of the future being able to affect the past? Yeah. So I have um, my theory is called stack time theory. So you take every moment at a specific location, like right where you're sitting, every moment that has happened is happening. It will happen are all happening concurrently. Um, and, you know, Einstein has some um, theories on this that it, it's interesting because um, th these ideas popped in my head a couple decades ago. I was like, oh, that's, 
that'd be an interesting concept. I'll start digging into it a little bit. Oh, Einstein had some ideas on this too. Uh, he, and he had what he called uh, within the space-time continuum, the block universe, uh, some similar ideas. But um, I liken it to a stack of photographs and that each moment uh, in time is at that location is like a stack of photographs all put on top of each other. And for whatever reason, we don't really know what the catalyst is, but for whatever reason, two moments in that stack of photos will resonate at the same frequency or very, very close to the same frequency. And that's when we start getting a glimpse of other moments in time and having, you know, things like these time slips and what have you. So when things like that happen, yeah, there are moments in which the future can actually influence the past. And um, so I guess this is kind of like the logical next step from time slip, which uh, I feel like we've, we've got, we've done a pretty good job of kind of like mm -hmm. touching on that, but uh, more into the idea of time travel, like right. consciously choosing time travel. Um, I guess uh, the possibility of real time travel. Mm -hmm. What is uh, what does that look like to you? Yeah, um, you know we we see kind of those ideas and concepts already in like our theoretical physics. You know, they uh, talk about well, you know, if you give, you know get close enough to a back a black hole, which is going to bend space and time, time is going to work differently around the black hole than it will on Earth. So then, you know, you come back to Earth after being around a black hole, and you'll be at a different point in time. Okay, that's wonderful, but we're not getting near a black hole anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and there is a bit of time dilation between you know, being outside the planet and down here. You have a couple of twin brother astronauts that are now different ages you know, by, by a couple of seconds. But that's um, still very cool. It's still very <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, but when we talk about you know, the idea of you know, really uh, experiencing time travel, really doing something like this. A lot of people immediately jump to the time machine, or DeLorean and a flux capacitor. Yeah. And, you know, I really don't think it's going to be that. I think it's going to have more to do with ourselves and our consciousness and um, being able to tune our bodies into the right frequency to be able to not just see a slip, but to actually be able to send ourselves there and experience that point in time for a longer duration. And I liken this to, and I don't know if you've uh, seen the movie or read the book, uh, Somewhere in Time. It I have stars, not. okay. Uh, it stars uh, Christopher Reeve, Jane Seymour. This is a while ago, 1980. And he basically uh, convinces himself, you know, he clears out, he, basically, he, he sees this, uh, you know, this is this historical tale. He's a playwright. He's kind of uh you know having trouble writing his next play sees this historic photo of this beautiful woman and he's just extremely extremely drawn to it um finds out some information about her finds that in uh her house she had passed away uh she had become very old and finds this book travels through time ah that's where i got the <laughs> book title from <laughs> not i'm not ashamed to admit it um but it was written by a professor that he uh, had in college. Talks to his professor. And he basically, the professor um, describes a time slip. But the professor also mentions that uh, by lying in this room where he was in this castle in Italy or wherever it was, that he felt that he was really, really there 
in that moment in whatever year it was. So Reeves character, Richard decides what he's going to do is go to this hotel, clears out all of the modern technology out of the room, sets it up with enough stuff to give him the impression that it's 1912 and convinces himself, essentially wills his consciousness back to 1912. And he's actually able to have an experience there with the woman. That's fast. That's, that's not okay. First of all, I'm going to check out that movie. Um. Yeah. I mean, at the heart of it, at the heart of it, it's a love story, but yeah. it's got all the supernatural times to travel stuff wrapped around it. It's, it's wonderful. Um. Well, like I said, kind of with the Alaska Triangle, I mean, we could spend months uh, getting to the to the bottom of so many of these t- uh, topics, concepts. But I do uh, want to let everybody know this book does come out uh, next week. Well, this actually, no, like I said, the podcast will be out. So the book's out. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> actually, Mike, I only have uh, one last question for you, really. And that's just uh, where can people find you, follow you? Where can they find your books? Uh, Specifically, yeah. I guess, maybe some of the books we discussed t- today. Also, uh, I guess we didn't mention it, but we talked a lot about the shadow people. And you do have a, a book called The Shadow Realm. And now I'll yeah, it's uh, I'll a, a Walk in the Shadows. Yeah, a Walk in the Shadows. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can find me in my uh, website. is MikeRickSecker.com. Uh, links to all my books and everything can be found there. I also have my online learning portal, uh, which is ConnectedUniversePortal.com, where we you know, dive into a lot of these different esoteric topics. Um, you can find the books, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all those great locations. Um, I do have a, you know, some events and book signings coming up. Uh, Bell Mansion, Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's August twelfth. Uh, I'm going to be at Michigan Paracon, which is the end of August twenty fourth to twenty sixth. Phenomicon out in Utah, which is September sixth through tenth. So not only will I have uh, my new book and other books at that particular one, Phenomicon, but I'm also part of the film festival there with uh, the Shadow Dimension docuseries. And that can be watched on Tubi TV, Roku channel, and other places. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Doug. It's been a great conversation.